Uh, thank you for being here. It's good to be with you. If the sound levels are too low for anybody, just give us an indication and we can turn that up. But my voice usually travels. So uh, if you really want it put down, tell me. Is it still a little bit low? Okay. Hopefully we'll not, we'll not blast too much towards Port Stewart. But is that all right? Yeah, good. Okay. So uh, thank you for being here. And this whole subject of competitiveness is something that I've actually been mulling on for some time. I've never actually spoken on it as yet. Um, and in many ways, that's because I need to hear so much about this, because the issue of competitiveness is something that is deeply ingrained in our culture and in our beings. Now, we're going to work through this. At, uh, rather than have a, a chunk of Q&A time at the end, I'll open for responses at different points during the hour that we have. But I also want us to do some, some thinking and applying as we go through. So we'll pause at points to to take a moment to, to reflect and to, to allow the Lord to speak to our hearts and to listen for his voice. So I hope that what we work through is useful for you and is something that you can take away. When we think about the word compete, which is the word that I've used in the title, I find it interesting to kind of look into the root meaning. I have a fascination with languages, with words, and with the root meanings of words. And the, the word compete comes to us from the Latin language. And in Latin, it comes from these two words that belong together, com and petere. And com is with, and petere is to seek or to aim at something. It's the same root word that we get petition from, a petition to ask for something. And so... If you were to take the root meaning of competition or competing, based on those two words, what it should mean is that together with one another, we seek for something. I find that quite ironic because that's clearly not what the English word compete means. And so there's something even in the evolution of this word that is telling us about culture and about the human heart that a concept that originally should have been about working together to achieve an aim has become about working against one another. How that happened is that the word in Latin then competere was used increasingly to, to mean something that fits or suits something. So uh, because this thing fits the aim that it's designed for, that's how the word was used. It is fitting, it's suitable. And then it came to mean in later Latin usage to strive for. Which, of course, in itself is a good thing, isn't it? If you think a goal is worthwhile, you want to strive towards that, put your energy and your effort into it. But when the word came over into English, by that stage, the, the first usage was actually the word competition in the sense of a competition between people, maybe in a sporting world or whatever. And so because a competition was a challenge with a goal, and increasingly those competitions were designed with one winner then it came to be that a competitor in the competition was competing against the others. So rather than striving together, which is the root meaning, it's striving against to achieve the goal. And I think just that little story of the roots of the word tell us a lot about the human heart because even things that begin with the aim of working together can so easily become competitive in the sense of working against one another. Let's pause. I've put two scales or a scale on the, on the board, and I want you just to pause where you are on your own and ask the question, where am I from not to 10 in success and in competitiveness? Now, 
what is success? That's for you to figure out. You may have some sense of the goals that you have had in life or the area that you work in. It could be in business, it could be in family, it could be in ministry. Uh, what would success mean and where are you on that chart? Honestly, where do you think you are? And then the second chart, how much do you think competitiveness in the sense of striving against others or striving to achieve a, a goal that only you can get and others won't get, how much is that part of you? So just take a moment to, to make this personal, to say, where do you rank and how does that honestly affect other people? Your success or your perceived failure and your competitiveness or lack of competitiveness. Would you do that together? Let's just pause. I'm going to give you a couple of minutes in silence just to do that. You can write it down if you like or just register it in your head before the Lord. So note to self, silence doesn't really work in tented venues when there's other seminars. But you get the concept. So let's try and be honest before the Lord. Lord, would you shine on my life and my thinking? I mean, this measure of success, of course, we're not going to be accurate in that, are we? It would be far better to ask other people, but it raises all sorts of questions. Well, what is true success? And how does that relate to competitiveness? And what is our motivation? And what are our goals? And what does the Lord want of us? And that's what we want to explore but competitiveness is everywhere around us. It starts out early in our lives with the education system. Uh, I remember at school, uh, very vividly, it was one of the times this really hit me. There was uh, one of those occasions when they put the marks up on a board. I think it was actually for GCSE. And I remember another pupil in my year who came up to the, the board and the first thing was, what did I get? But in the very next breath, it was, uh, did I beat? It happened to be me that <laughs> she was saying, did I beat? Uh, and it was like, you know, and that really, really mattered to her. And if we're honest, of course, we don't always spill it out like that, do we? But there is that sense within education. And I work in education, in the education system. Many of you might as well. But it is at some level fundamentally competitive, isn't it? We don't just say, well, here's how you are doing against your potential. We say, here's how you're doing against other people. And of course, you might want to say, well, there are benefits of that, or how else would you do it? Or isn't that better than the alternative? At least we've got standards and we measure that. But it starts to creep then into our valuing and thinking about self. And of course, then we go for uh, employment. And we have a competitive employment system. Again, you might say that's better than what we used to have, where you know who you know gets you into the job and discrimination and so on. But it's a competitive system where you sell yourself. We don't generally say in the job interview, no, I just want you to know if there's a better candidate, please give it to them. That's not how we're conditioned to do it, is it? And that creeps even into Christian jobs at times and how we recruit. And yet, what does that say and what does it do? We're competing against others. And then, of course, in business, both uh, locally and globally, the whole Brexit question, there's a competitive edge between nations, trade tariffs, trade wars. And in business, yes, you're in a competitive marketplace. So it's no wonder that whenever we get leisure time, we say we've had enough of competition. We're going to park that and just relax. Well, no, 
So we've got sporting systems that, that are fundamentally competitive, don't we? And this is going to be more of an issue for some of us than others. As most classically, it's more of a male thing to get into competitive sports. And again, I'm not saying that's all bad or that doesn't have its place, but, it, but it, it's sort of funny that living in a very competitive world, we also design leisure around competitive pursuits. Competition is everywhere in our culture and our society. Sorry, the sports picture is there. Now, again, we have to step back and say there can be benefits to competition. I've mentioned a couple of those as I've talked about those different areas. But classically, folks say, well, look, competition encourages excellence. It encourages you to do your very best. And competition maximizes the, the use of resources, you know, so that they're used most effectively and best because only the people who can be really successful get the resources and then they multiply that. And it motivates effort, which relates to the first point, excellence and also effort. It's a motivating force. And of course, that is often true and classically, and I don't want to turn this into a political seminar at all, but the, the right of center perspective is that competitive marketplace does all of these things. But stepping back from that, the question then might be, what is the cost of those benefits? And so that's what I want us just to take a moment to talk about maybe where you are, just turn to somebody beside you, or do this on your own if you prefer. But what do you think the costs are of that competitiveness and who pays that cost? Is that fair enough? So just if you're with me on that chat together, how do you see that? Or, or push back against anything I've said or explore it. So just where you are, have a quick chat. And then if there's any comments, I'll welcome those after that. Okay, any comment back, anything? This is the moment where you can say, you know, somebody in our group was saying, <laughs> you don't have to make it personal, but any, any thoughts about that? Is there a cost for this competitiveness? Yeah. So there are people in our, in our society who cannot compete, perhaps because of, of an intellectual or a physical disability. So what's the cost for those folks? And then this is where we say, of course, our culture has made great advances in inclusivity and, and in supporting independent living. But have we quite got to where we are? Is there not still a sense that there is a hierarchy and that some people are left behind? Yes? So in the job interview situation, sometimes it's about how you present yourself. It's not always how well you'll do the job. There's always a loser or losers often. And if there's only one successful person, usually most people are unsuccessful. What does that do to those folks? It's not really a measure of their ability or their contribution. You know, this is where I begin to dream about would there not be a different way to do it, which would require everybody to buy into that. But, but yeah, any, any other thoughts? So the question there, the comment there is about our interdependency. We are codependent in society. Uh, on, you know, there are people who grow food and I don't, so I buy it and, and so on. And, and does competitiveness serve that or work against that? What is at the heart of our nature? Is it to cooperate or to compete? Uh, again, it takes a bit of imagination to think of an alternative way. How else could it work? But yeah, it's a challenge as a society. So a lack of compassion, that sense of the Christian attitude of compassion for others can get dropped or clouded because you end up stepping over others and pushing others back for you to get forward. So is this fundamentally un-Christian un or at what point does it become un-Christian? Now I'm trying to tread a very careful line because I haven't got the de definitive answer as to which political system would work best 
but we have to realize actually we live in a fallen world, don't we? There may be things that work broadly in a fallen world. That does not necessarily mean that they are God's best or God's ideal. And so the question, what is it to be authentically Christian in how we think about all of this is so important. Let's, oh, I think I'm losing control here. But let's uh, think about that question. Is this what God intended? So we're asking, is this the system God intended? And I've put a quote on the screen uh, as somebody who, who lectures and lives in the academic world, I can't plagiarize, so I have to attribute that quote, but I've tried to make the name of the author very small because I'm not trying to critique an author who I think has written a lot of very, very helpful stuff. Um, but this is a, a quotation which comes from a, a book that's talking about business for the glory of God. And that author says, competition seems to be the system God intended when he gave people greater talents in one area and gave other people greater talents in another area. And when he established a world where justice and fairness would require giving greater reward for better work. Now, I read that and I listen to that and I'm, I'm sorry to say that, but what I hear there is a, a North American cultural defense of competitiveness because I simply don't recognize that account of Scripture. And I want to explain why by looking at what Scripture does say. I think there are lots of questions you could ask about that. Does justice and fairness mean that some work requires a bigger reward? Why would it be that if I've been given my gifts and my opportunities by God, that I would expect that I should get paid more than somebody else who does a different job. Well, you might say, well, you have a more responsible job than them. But if God has given me that opportunity and that giftedness to carry that responsibility, who am I to take a greater reward for it? You understand the concept? Why would we not think that way? Or God gave people greater talents. Well, a greater talent means greater responsibility, doesn't it? Because I have a greater talent doesn't mean I push my talent forward in a way that excludes the talents of others. I may have greater talent in this area, you may have in another area, but wouldn't it be better if both of those talents are used to the maximum? Do we always have to conceive of that in competitive terms? I don't think we do. What about cooperation, working together? So just to, to comment on that, I've, I've given sports a little bit of a hard time, but sports are actually very interesting, and I think they're a parable of, of society because at one level you might say sports are competitive, and they are. People compete or teams compete against each other in whichever sport, and apparently there is actually a, an international tug-of-war competition, so that's not just made up. But every sport has that, or every team sport at least, has a competitive element within it. But that happens within a set of rules. And regulations. And you could say something similar about business. We don't just let a completely free marketplace, we put some regulation around that. And the rules in sport are cooperative. These teams agree to compete within the rules, which are cooperative. So they co co cooperate to have rules and a system within which they compete. You understand my point? It's cooperative competition or com competitive cooperation. And I find that a really interesting parable of, of society because that seems to me what we do at a societal level. We recognize that competition can have benefits, but if we leave it unbridled, some people will suffer. So we put in place safety nets or regulations or, or a, a welfare state that kind of catches those people. 
It seems to me that's a way of trying to manage the fallen human nature. Because this competitiveness is so deeply part of us, but in order to stay at peace with one another, we put cooperative measures in place. Now, that doesn't answer the question as to whether team sport is a good thing or not, but it's an interesting observation or comment, isn't it? So we have this tension, I think, within us between competing and cooperating. What was it like in the beginning? Well, Genesis 1, 26, when God within God's self is speaking about the creation of human beings that he is just about to accomplish, it says, God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion. And it goes on to say the kind of dominion they'll have. Do you see the the plural cooperative language there? God is not competing within God's self over how to design a human being. The triune God is working in harmony as the triune God always does. And from his person of interdependence and cooperation, he creates human beings to work together in the responsibility of dominion over his creation. And so the question then becomes, well, where did we end up with this competitive heart and competitive system? And the answer to that, of course, as often is in Genesis. We've got to follow the story through, haven't we? And in the opening chapters of Genesis, you see competition played out. You see it in Genesis 3, competition between the sexes. We could talk a lot about that in the culture we live in now. That's a huge issue. We see it played out all the time. How do we as men and women relate to one another, male and female, Well, fundamentally, our society sees it in conflicted competitive terms, fighting for position, for right, for recognition. Now, we could do a whole seminar on that, and I do talk on that issue of gender identity. It's a huge issue for us in in this moment, but that's not where we're going. But it's there in Genesis. Now, this verse is open to different interpretations, but somewhere in Genesis 3, within this, it's saying there will be an unhealthy dynamic between the man and the woman. So it's there, competition at that level of our identity and our our, our sexual identity. And then within families, you read on into Genesis 4, and it talks about Cain and Abel, and a brother who kills his brother and says, am I my brother's keeper? But at the heart of that is competition for God's approval in their sacrifices, and for significance, and for success. And if you follow that through in Cain's family, you see that that multiplies into the life of a man called Lamech who boasts about his ability to take revenge. And if Cain is avenged seven times, Lamech 77 times. Read it in Genesis 4. And then you read on into Genesis 11 and you see the the Tower of Babel and the cooperation of human beings, which God interrupts. You think, well, so is God against cooperation? Well, it's the beginning there of competition between nations, which follows through in Genesis. One of the things you see in Abraham's family is Abraham and Isaac. Well, Isaac doesn't do it, but Abraham and Jacob go into Egypt to get food because there's a famine, competition for resources between the nations. Isaac doesn't do it, and God tells him not to go. But when Abraham and Jacob go, or Jacob's sons, the consequences are bad for them 
but it's a competitive national identity. It's this competition for resource. Now, why is it that God stops the cooperation, scatters them, confuses their languages? Did that not add to competition? Well, the astute amongst you will notice a gap at the top, and you'll notice that I skipped from Genesis 1 into the verse 16 of Genesis 3. Something else happens before that, doesn't it? And it's the fundamental competitiveness in human nature. It is a competition with God. That's where the temptation that the serpent brings to Adam and Eve is. He says, God knows when you eat of this fruit, your eyes will be opened. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. And that's the starting point of competitiveness in the scriptures. Adam and Eve believe that we can compete with God. We could do a better job in his place. We don't need to be subservient to him. We can step up the ladder and be on a par with him and rule our own affairs and guide our own lives. But the result of that that flows out as they take that step of sin, that original sin that is passed down into all of us, is this then competition between the sexes, within families, sibling rivalry. We've probably all experienced some of that at some level. And then between nations and companies and societies and politics. and Because even when the people cooperate in Genesis 11 in the Tower of Babel, they cooperate to compete against God. <laughs> you see? To build a tower that will make their name great that will reach to the heavens, that will enable them to, to sort the world without God. And that's one of the big challenges in international affairs as to how nations cooperate and what they cooperate for and whether that cooperation is in rivalry with, with God, with the sovereign God. So this problem of competition is one way, it's not necessarily the only way to describe the root problem of human sin in our competition against God, our rivalry with God. Let's just pause again. And you may want to do this individually, or you may want to turn to somebody beside you if you know them well, or even if you think it's good to talk to somebody I don't know so well. What harmful competitiveness have you experienced or contributed to in these three areas? National, political, cultural identities. I hope that's not too thinly veiled for us as people in this part of the world, and family relationships, and sexual or romantic relationships, which could be your marriage, it could be some relationship that you've experienced in the past. Where have you seen harmful aspects of rivalry, conflict, competition in each of those areas? And perhaps boldly, where have you contributed to that? Is that fair to do? So I suspect many of you will want to do that individually, but please feel free to talk quietly to someone beside you if that's appropriate and if they're also willing. But let's search our hearts and say both what has harmed me, but honestly, how might I have harmed others in these areas? So please take a, a couple of minutes to say, and then, and then the bottom line, how do those reflect a fundamental competition with God? Okay. Take a, take a couple of minutes to do that, and then I'll invite feedback again. Just before I invite feedback from you, can I invite you to join me in prayer? Father, we confess to you that we have suffered because of competitiveness, but we have also caused others to suffer because of our competitiveness.
Father, you know our hearts. You've heard our words, whether they were silently formed in our minds or spoken to one another. But we acknowledge, Father, that we are not immune from or separate from this system. Even though we may desire, and many of us in this room may desire to cooperate, we have this fundamental issue and we want to confess that that flows from a, a rivalry with you for lordship over our lives. Father, would you forgive us? Through Christ, our servant, Lord. And Father, would you teach us how to follow you from this point on? And would you help us to find grace to return to those who may have harmed us. And so we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Any comment or question so far? We're about to move into the question of ministry and church, but any anything folks want to share just at this point? That That's a comment. I know folks can't always hear, so the, the gentleman who's speaking is a, is a teacher and reflecting on, on the fact that there seems to be something hardwired, particularly within boys, in terms of competing. And then if that's removed, as there may be trends, and I'm sure a lot of you are aware of that, the, the sort of the sports day where everyone's a winner, or um, you know, removing some of those more, those harder edges of competition, does that demotivate? Is that the, the question? How do, we, how do we then handle that? I, I suppose what I, would, what I would say is that there is and it's easy to confuse, and I'm probably at least partly contributing to that confusion, the question of motivation with competition or the question of striving. So to go back to that root word, there is a good and healthy striving for success if success is properly defined. And I think what we struggle with is to know how to motivate that, how to celebrate giftedness and success without that having to be at the expense of somebody else. And that's where I think the tension lies. So I'm not an educationalist at your level, or I mean, I work in, the, in, in a different part of the education system, but it seems to me that it is possible to have both. Not easy though. And the question of what is hardwired in, I think because of this sin nature, yes, there is a rivalry and a competitiveness hardwired in. But because of our created nature in the image of God, there is also a cooperative dimension that is hardwired in. And these two are in conflict w within us. So I, I would say the question is, how do we maximize the positive motivation and being able to celebrate together the successes of people, but to recognize different dimensions of success and to recognize that success means succeeding with what you have been given not succeeding by being better than somebody else. Do you, do you understand what I mean? So, so I, I, I see the challenge. I don't know how much we can do that in a fallen world and within systems that are telling us to do things certain ways. It would worry me though if boys particularly were suffering because we swing away from, you know, and you could say, well, maybe there've been systems where girls have suffered because things have been done in a very masculine way. Surely there must be a way to harness both. Then we could continue that conversation. I'm sure you'll have some ideas as you reflect on it. But I think it is, we do need to recognize that competition when it is about striving to get ahead of other people 
I don't think, and I can't say it in Scripture, where that has a positive aspect. That seems to me to always be a negative and a result of sin. And I think we confuse within ourselves, and sometimes we justify that to ourselves in terms of thinking, well, this is just my motivation to do my best. But if within that I don't have the thought of how do I help and bless and bring others with me in my success, then we've got a problem. Do you see what I mean? And that, any other comments, sorry, before, because it, it's leading me mentally onto the next slide, but I don't want to rush. Yeah. <laughs> that's a very honest admission, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So the, the comment there is about teachers within the education system competing against each other because of resource. At my end of the education system, in the, in the um, tertiary level, the academic world is full of this, you know, competing for publications, competing for the longest CV, for position, for funding, for research. Yeah. That's uh, probably no doubt a whole seminar or series in itself. <laughs> but I do find it fascinating, you know, that whole, that nationalism, uh, that nation first. I suppose one thing I could say for Trump is he's probably a bit more honest <laughs> about that because what you see, you, you, know, you just see his uh, and his own personal character traits within that. But yeah, I think there's a danger, you see, though, when those things, the more those things become normalized, or even perhaps the more it becomes extreme in a person like Trump, maybe then we, we compare ourselves with that and think, well, I'm not as bad as, as him. So I suppose that's where I want to bring the focus into Christian leaders and ministry. Yeah. But it's a, it's a fair observation. Let's think then a, a, about the, the, the church, because surely if competitiveness is everywhere, it wouldn't be in the church, would it? And I, I mentioned that story from my school days earlier on, one of the other really poignant moments where I was struck by this, which set me reflecting, and this must be a good number of years ago, but sitting in a conference for young men, specifically for young men, and I was one of, I was younger than I am now, but I was with other men who were younger who I'd brought along. And the speaker there did, I think, what was a really helpful analysis of much of what is wrong with men and young men today. Uh, and that I found very helpful. But his punchline, his response, his answer, and this is a direct quote because it was burnt on my memory, was this. He said, work hard and get ahead of the other guys. That was his response, partly because what he'd critiqued was laziness and wastefulness of time. And he went on then to say something that I can't quote directly, but he said something along the lines of, I didn't get where I am today by, um, by being lazy and sitting playing computer games or whatever. Now, <laughs> to me, that was a really helpful analysis of some problems. And I suppose being a medic by background, as John said, diagnosis is incredibly important but so is getting the right cure. <laughs> and if you, if you make a diagnosis of symptoms, but don't get to the root diagnosis, and it struck me then that actually one of the greatest and deepest issues with the male psyche, certainly, and I can speak with experience of that, you can judge for yourself uh, in your own life, whichever sex you're, you are, is actually this competitiveness. 
to answer the issue of laziness and lack of productivity by saying, look at me because I'm successful. I'm up here on the platform speaking to you. And if you want to be like me and you want to flip the, and you might be sitting here thinking, yeah, he's up there with the mic and I don't get the mic. Or you might be sitting in there thinking the same. Well, I, I think this guy said it. And, and sadly, actually, as I followed his story, he had a, quite a, a dramatic fall. And I, I, it, it was tragic to observe, but it didn't surprise me, I have to be honest, because I'd heard this comment. Now, I don't say that saying, so, you know, don't follow him, follow me. <laughs> because what I'm trying to do is to say, Lord, this is in me too. I struggle with that question of how do I be faithful in ministry? I want to have influence. I want to have a wider reach. If I thought I, if I think I have truth, then I have to be faithful with using that, don't I? And if, if God is gifted, you want to use that. But why is it that then we have a culture where we might be okay to say this kind of thing or flip that around? We're not saying more to one another in ministry. How is your heart and how do you cope with that competitiveness and how can I pray for you to use that well? When you compliment me as a speaker, if you do and you don't have to, that's not a plea for it. But any speaker, I don't I, I do want to hear if I've done a good job. I also want to hear if I've done a bad job because I need to hear that. I need that correction. But what I need most of all is for you to say, if you think that this person is gifted, well, who gave the gift? You don't praise the recipient of a gift, do you? You praise the person who gave it. So what I and any other speaker in any capacity needs is to say, look, God has entrusted a gift to you. I will be praying for you that you use this gift faithfully. And praise God for it. That's still encouraging for the person. That's not kind of saying, oh, I can't encourage you. But it's helping that person to remember and helping you to think, how do I pray for that? So this issue of competitiveness comes into to ministry. And I have to be honest because I, obviously I've, I've read quite a lot about church. It's not just at an individual level. Sorry, I'll come to that slide in a second. This is deeply ingrained in some of the theories that we have about how you grow the church and how you do mission, and how you build the church. Because at the root of that are things like branding, and marketing, and measurement, and comparison. And I've seen statements, which I'll not put on the screen, but I, I know of at least one town in Northern Ireland, and an article in the newspaper to say a new church has started. And as I read that article, effectively boiling down what was said in it was... You know, it was effectively at last a church in this town that is seeking God's kingdom and is going to change this, this town. As if none of the other churches were, were seeking God's kingdom or doing anything of any value. It was a fundamentally competitive statement. Now, that's not me passing a judgment. I'm not naming the town or the church because we can all do that. When you look at the history of this in, in Christianity, I find it quite interesting. In the, in the 19th century... And some of you will like this, and some of you who don't like history will glaze over. But if you go to the 19th century, there was this concept called muscular Christianity. And that's defined in the Oxford Dictionaries as a Christian life of brave and cheerful physical activity, especially as popularly associated with the writings of Charles Kingsley and with boys' public schools of the Victorian British Empire. The team sports that dominate international team sports 
are almost entirely products or largely products of this movement of muscular Christianity. Either through the public school system, which gave cricket, tennis, soccer as well, believe it or not, and rugby, and others, but those are the big ones, or through other offshoots of muscular Christianity, which I'll explain in a second. And when you look at the history of this, this, this idea of muscular Christianity, it, it's a very masculine thing, yes, it's a very boys thing, it's the boys' public school system, um, and it's also a very much the value of the British Empire. And that age and that moment of thinking, we need to produce leaders for the empire, generals and, and teachers and educators. And the public school system, you might think, was only ever a tiny fraction of the English population. And yes, it was. But because of the people it produced and because they were the people who got position in politics and in education, it had a huge impact right across the culture. And it gave us competitive team sports. Charles Kingley is mentioned there. He's the author of Westward Ho and the Water Babies and so on. He popularized this in his writings. The, the public school system, a man called Thomas Arnold, who was headmaster of rugby school, is probably the leading person. He looked at the public school system and he recognized there was a problem because bullying was rife. The way it worked was basically, if you're older, you get to bully the younger ones. You're probably familiar with that. Uh, Tom Brown's school days, if any of you ever remember that, that was part of this whole reflection on that. And Arnold said, what we need is to put discipline in. And we need a, a respect, so the younger boys respect the older boys, and the older boys respect the teachers, but the teachers need to respect the older boys too. And so the older pupils, the prefects, will work with the school system to bring discipline or with the teachers. Now, you might say that's cooperative and that's, that's good, but within that was this idea of harnessing competition. So sports became a huge part of the life of these schools, uh, unavoidable within the system, and they became increasingly regulated and increasingly competitive. And the interesting thing about both of these uh, individuals is they were both clergymen. They were both Anglican uh, clergymen. So this was very much a Christian movement. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say a blanket statement because it's, we don't have time to analyze that, but I think m there were good aspects to that, but there were aspects where they were insufficiently critiquing, being very gentle, this value of competitiveness and the values of the empire. And it carried over into certain other organizations. The YMCA is the leading example, Young Men's Christian Association, physical exercise. And the concept was if you're physically fit and disciplined, you'll be spiritually disciplined, which has some real merit, doesn't it? But, but somewhere along the line, the physical took over from the spiritual. Now, that didn't happen in some of the other outworkings in the BB, for example, and uh, this is not a critique or a criticism of BB. My son is in the BB, um, but that idea of everything pertaining to Christian manliness, it's very much the product of this muscular Christianity. And the danger within it is that the spiritual gets neglected or that competitiveness becomes the system, and we see so much of our youth ministry and of Christian youth work has been based around competitive systems, hasn't it? Or even in Sunday school, that you compete to get the winning team. How much of that are we baptizing a cultural value and how much of that are we subverting it with the gospel? The YMCA, interestingly, it was YMCA physical instructors who invented basketball and volleyball. So I said there were other 
competitive sports that came out of this movement through other ways. And they, they invented them as, as good, healthy, indoor sports. And of course they are, because they realized we need some indoor sports as well as outdoor, all right? But it was that that gave us that. So here is a Christian contribution to culture and society that maybe we didn't realize, but that maybe didn't critique these values enough. But when it comes to competitiveness and the church today, we see this in at least three ways. There is internal competition for position and recognition. Let's be honest about that. Within our congregations and our organizations, there is internal competition. Sometimes we encourage that through the systems that we use to appoint people. Or sometimes it just happens because of this heart issue, but we don't challenge it enough. And then, of course, there's competition between congregations. If you can't read this, this church has a sign says, we care about you. And this one says, yeah, but we've got better music. And, <laughs> you know, it, every congregation wants to have whatever they think is most valuable. They want to have the best person doing that. If they think it's music, get the best worship leader, as they call it. And if it's preaching, let's get the best preacher. And if it's this care, let's get the best pastoral carer. And, well, why does it have to be that way? If the best is there, why could that person not serve all of those congregations? And, and how much do we think of that in our appointments to say this is a gift not just to our church, but to the church? We've got into this way of thinking that the growth of my congregation is what measures my success. But what if my congregation was growing, and by growing it was harming the whole should I really be excited if my congregation is growing, if the whole church in my area is declining? Where is that commitment to say, I want to see the health of every congregation, and we want to contribute to that through our part? And of course, then competing with alternatives to attract and entertain outsiders. So much of our evangelism can become about that. This sign says, what could this sign say to get you here Sunday? It's kind of, <laughs> we'll say anything, we'll promise anything, we'll offer anything, if it'll just get you in the doors. We want to attract you in. And sometimes that leads us to produce publicity, which dumbs down the Christian content. I've seen that, you know, the, there's a, this youth program and you need to read the really fine print to see that there might just be a talk in it, which might just mention Jesus. I'm not even sure that's honest. But, you know, are we thinking of ourselves as in competition? And at one level we are, aren't we? Entertaining, it's easy to say that's a bad thing, but to entertain means to get people's attention so that they'll hear your message. We have to entertain people in that sense to connect with their need, but we can't do it in a way that, that reduces the message. And we can't think that we can compete with the world because when the world does... Uh, events. I'm sorry, but they do it a lot better than the church does. So why do we try to compete on that? Because that's not what we have to offer the world, is it? What is it that the world can find in the church that it won't find at the pop concert or at the festival? What is it? It's the gospel. It's Christ. And it's community of genuine love centered on Christ in the power of God's Spirit, with the gospel transforming us. So why is it that we think, well, we've got to compete with the world rather than simply to be that countercultural reality which it can't find anywhere else? 
Sorry, this is where I have to be careful. I don't start to preach. Pause for a moment again, and, and then we have a few more comments to make after this. So just think, where do you see, honestly, now just think yourself on this one. Where do you see competitiveness in the internal dynamics of your church? I don't want us to share about this because this is not about criticizing. It's about being honest in our assessment. In interaction across the church and in outreach. So across the church between congregations or between denominations. And in what ways is this harmful? And start to think, but please take this away with you. How could it be done differently? I'm going to help you hopefully with some pointers to that in the last little section. But please just take one uh, 10 seconds to, to think about that and begin that process. Now I should say, and you, you again, the astute may have noticed, there is up on the top corner here a little link. So paulcoulter.net forward slash, you can't see the end of it, but it's compete. So if you go to that, you'll find the slides for this if you want to take time to look through that again. They're all, they're all there, okay? paulcoulter.net forward slash compete. So what are we going to do with this? What are we going to do about this? Well, if I ask you the question, how does life and how does ministry fundamentally work? What is the basic principle that life in this world works on? Well, one answer to that is, and John mentioned in the introduction, this idea of modernity having influenced our thinking. It's the survival of the fittest. It's that Darwinian concept that the fittest survive. The healthiest have more children and pass on their genes, and that's how evolution works, and it's how social progress works as well. Even though most people would say we're not into social Darwinism, actually it's been hugely influential in this thinking. Well, is that how life fundamentally works? Do you believe that's how life works? No, I, I don't believe it. It may be how our society works at times. It may be how life pans out in a fallen, sinful world. But scripturally, how life and ministry works is salvation through faith, isn't it? And salvation through faith is not about your success or your achievement or your comparison to somebody else. It is about your dependence on a good God. And if you take this down to the bottom, if life is about survival of the fittest, then how do you get through life? You get through life by grit. You know that film, True Grit? I haven't seen the modern one, but that concept of grit that sticks it out. Bear and grin it. When it's hard, just keep going, keep chipping away. And when it's good, maximize that and get ahead. Well, grit and perseverance is a good quality at times, isn't it? We need it. We need to develop that resilience. But fundamentally, this life and ministry does not work on the basis of your grit. It works on the basis of God's grace. That's the currency of God's kingdom. An unmerited, generous giving of God's self. And of every gift and capacity that you have, and of every need that you have, in that need, God's grace is available. And every good thing that you have is a gift of his grace to you and through you to his people. We've got to capture this at the fundamental level. So what does that mean for us? What is God's vision for his people? Well, there is a competition, but it's not against one another, is it? We've got enough enemies, if I can say that. Classically, people talk about the world, the flesh, and the devil. Really important when we say the world that we understand it's not 
that we're out there to fight against everybody who isn't a Christian. It means that system, that human system, which includes this competitive system, which is a worldly way of thinking. We're here to compete against that, not against one another. We're here to compete against the flesh, the inner conflict of the sinful nature against the Spirit of God and against the devil. Is that not enough for us to compete against? So there is a competition, a rivalry, but this is the level that it's at. And then it's motivation by grace, not by comparison. One of the verses that sometimes people say, but hang on, didn't Paul say I beat my body and I went win the race? And look at this, all the runners run, but only one receives the prize. There you go, Paul's using a competitive image, and he is. But he's not using that image to say, get ahead of the other guys. Paul never says that. Paul's thing would be, run to cross the line and bring as many people with you as you can. Yeah? I hope you see that in his writings. And it's there in that verse too. He says, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. You do not need to be motivated by comparison with other people and doing better than them or demotivated by doing worse than them. Because your motivation and my motivation can be the wonderful grace of God in Christ Jesus and the invitation to a prize that is imperishable. That's not the one they give out in school or whatever in the sports competition. So I will be motivated and discipline myself to cross that line and to see others crossing that line. And it's cooperation for Christ's cause in Christ's way or in Christ's likeness. Those words in Philippians, just go home and read over them and see. And and let's not just skip over it. But complete my joy, Paul says, by being of the same mind, the same love, in full accord and of one mind. Do we long for that with our brothers and sisters? It's not easy. I'm not saying it's easy. Paul's not saying it's easy either, but he's saying this is the goal. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. And where does he go next? Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Do we really believe that? That's the gospel, isn't it? Christ giving himself for us and calling us to follow And so Paul says, we are God's fellow workers. Another amazing passage, go and reflect on it. He says, what is Apollos? What is Paul? We're just servants of God. If we're talking about Christian ministry, let's remember what ministry means. It's another word for service, isn't it? I find it funny because I slip into talking about my ministry. (laughs) How can I own my service for someone else? You you understand (laughs) All I am is a servant of God, and I've got to be faithful and follow. And Paul, this phrase, let's not underestimate that we are God's fellow workers. Fundamentally, we are called to cooperate with God, and through cooperating with him, to cooperate with each other. That's the calling of ministry. I'll not go into the Greek word. And this is going to take some heart work, and I'll finish on this. 
Jesus in Mark's gospel, which I didn't know that, that Sam was going to be leading us through Mark in the evenings here, but he has been. But in Mark's gospel, there is this challenging, challenging passage. I'll leave you with the headings and you go and take that and, and run with it. But Jesus is confronted with the disciples who are arguing with each other about who's the greatest in the kingdom. And he says to them, what were you talking about on the way? <laughs> and they go silent because they're ashamed. Because they know it's not really right. And we do too, don't we? And what does he say and what does he do? He says, if you want to be the first, be the least. And he takes a little child who is insignificant in the culture of the time, the least who has got nothing to give and nothing to return and nothing to teach them other than the example of humility. And he sets that child on his knee and he says, you've got to receive a little child like this and when you do that, you're receiving me. It is a call to serve the least. And in doing so, it is a cure for, somebody said, compassion gets dropped when we compete. When you compete, when you let competitiveness grip your heart, you become callous. Why? Because you're always, notice this in yourself, you're always comparing with the people who are better than you, aren't you? Why is that person more successful? Why do they have more opportunities? Why are they getting ahead or getting the recognition? And when you do that, you forget to look the other way, don't you? And Jesus says, look the other way. And you make it your business to serve the least. It's a challenge in a conference like this because we all want a wee bit of time with the speaker or the important person. And some of us walk around with these to remind you how no, we don't, so that we can help you if you need it, honestly. But look out for the least. The person who's on the outside. That's what Jesus tells us to do and that's what he did for us. And then he says, well, they say, okay, well, let's forget about this bickering amongst ourselves. There's a guy over there who's casting out demons in your name and he's not one of us. And the disciples don't want to see the ministry that God has given them expanding to include others. They want to keep it for themselves. Now, they've got some good reasons for that. Jesus had chosen them to be the apostles, not this other guy. But it's an irony because what do they do? They say, stop doing it. They don't say, come and meet Jesus <laughs> and, and make sure you're really doing it in his name. And come and join us. And Jesus says, the one who isn't against us is for us. Whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. You see, when you compete, you become critical. And it's one of the tests, do I praise others? Can I give recognition when others do a good job? And don't get me wrong, there are times you need to discern and make a judgment and recognize what's bad. But if you can't give praise and be glad when others are doing well, then it's a sign of this issue. We need to shift from that to cooperate. It's cooperating in Christ. It's not just blindly with everybody who believes anything. Jesus says, if this man effectively says, if he's really doing it in my name, he's not going to speak evil of me in the next minute, he says. In other words, give him time and we'll see if he's really of me. But you start with the desire to cooperate. And thirdly, he then goes on and he, he, he gets to the heart, Jesus does, of the issue. And he says, you know what? If you cause a little one who believes in me to stumble, it would be better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be cast into the sea or the ban or wherever it is near you. And if your, your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. 
And if your hand causes you to sin, chop, chop it off. Not literal, otherwise I wouldn't be holding my hand up. But saying sin is serious, cut it out. And then he says, you know, because it's better to enter into life with parts of your body missing than to end up in the fires of hell. Because everyone will be salted with fire. And if salt has lost its saltiness, what good is it? So have salt in yourself and live at peace with each other. How do we have peace in cooperation with each other? We need to be salty. But why does Jesus talk about salted with fire? I'll go back to Leviticus. The burnt offering had to be seasoned with salt. Salt was part of many of the offerings for Israel. It's an image of sacrifice. What Jesus is saying is, if you want to be salty, sacrifice your selfishness. Give it over. Competition leads to corruption. We've seen that in cricket and in other sports or when the guy dives on the pitch. (laughs) The rules get bent, don't they? And it corrupts our hearts. And we need to be cleansed by God, who's the only one who can cleanse us and make us salty. And because salt purifies. Sacrifice your selfishness. Give it to God. So that's what I'm leaving you with at a very personal level. What do you need to do? What do I need to do to serve the least? Think about it. Where is that in your life and in your church's life? And what do I need to do to seek partnership with others in Christ? And what do I need to do to sacrifice my selfishness? Let me pray for you, and then I'm here to chat, but we'll go our our ways. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for this time. I pray that you will have been working in our hearts. You've certainly been working in mine. Would you continue that work? Would you cleanse us and make us salty? Would you open our eyes to the least around us and amongst us so that we can serve them? And would you rebuke us for our focus on our own work and our lack of desire for a generous partnership in you and in your truth? Oh, Father, forgive us, teach us, lead us for your glory and in the great name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you.